This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. Because this is hell. And yet again, there's definitely a fortune being made in the crime we will be discussing today. We started this week by talking about who our guest, award-winning writer Clark Randall, describes in his recent article at the Boston Review as bond villains in that municipal bondholders bail out cities when their budgets come up short and make a killing while doing it. At times, killings are literally the outcome as municipal bondholders profit when cities lose police violence lawsuits. This morning, we continue our look into the ugly ways fortunes are being made, fortunes that should be a crime to amass. These wasteful fortunes are just that, filled with waste, toxic waste created by big tech companies that don't seem to give a damn about the environmental consequences of their products or the environmental consequences of their production. Instead of considering how not to make so much waste, big tech seems more interested in profiting not only from the waste they make, but cashing in while cleaning it up afterwards as well. We'll do our best to learn just how bad big big tech's waste problem is in a few minutes when we speak with culture, tech, waste, wealth, And Skyscrapers, yes, Skyscrapers writer Matthew King, who posted the New Republic article, Big Tech's Waste Solutions Are a Scam, rather than face hard truths about reorganizing our system to stop waste, the world is falling victim to empty and inefficient cleanup promises from the tech industry. Matt's essays and reportage on waste, urbanism, and inequality have appeared in publications like The Atlantic, Pacific Standard, and The Baffler, among others. His writing The Vertical Wasteland, a speculative eulogy for The Office Tower, see, he does write about skyscrapers, was named a 2022 notable by Best American Essays and Best American Science and Nature Writing. Matt's essay, Spoiling the Last Frontier on Space Junk and Its Profiteers, appeared in Baffler issue number 61 called Space Opera which followed similar critiques of ocean cleanup efforts and modern recycling. In recent years, his narrative reporting uh, for The Atlantic on modern-day secret societies and monolithic distribution centers has been featured as must-reads on Recode, Gizmodo, and Yahoo Finance. Only at the Top of the World, a personal essay for Catapult about the Burj Khalifa, again, another skyscraper piece, was anthologized by Long Reads. As an MFA nonfiction fellow at Emerson College, Matt taught first-year writing courses in composition and creative writing and served as a research specialist for best-selling nonfiction authors and filmmakers, assisting with transcripts, summaries, book proposals, and archival research. He also worked with the Boston Lit District on an interactive historic map and briefly served as interim business manager at Plowshares. You can find out more about Matt at matt-king.com. M-E. And you can follow Matt on Twitter.com at underscore Matt King. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, anything new by you? 
Uh, class has started this week, so I'm back to three jobs for this time of year. No, really? Yeah. So you're working on history books. Uh-huh. You are working on the show. Yep. And now you're teaching students at Loyola University. That's right. Sweet. So uh, what's the title of your class? Uh, U.S. History Since 1865. Sweet, man. So we're starting off nice and depressing with actually an excerpt from former guest Kadada Williams' new book. Um, on the overthrow of Reconstruction. Oh, wow. And some primary source testimony uh, from the Ku Klux Klan hearings of 1871. Those hearings are crazy. They're so detailed and just... You can't believe this is, you know, happening before Congress, right? Right, that you can't believe it's happening before Congress and that it's not a part of... Your K through 12 history classes. Right. I mean, it's some of the most important things for us to understand our pre-civil, our antebellum history in the United States is to read that testimony, and nobody knows about it. No. No. It makes us feel bad. Do you think, <laughs> do you ever get students who come up to you and disagree with the stuff that you are teaching them? Not really. I mean, every once in a while, um, it used to, about 10 years ago, it used to be more common to get you know your 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 libertarian bro in right. class but that seems to have gone out of fashion so yeah i used to get a lot of like oh couldn't you argue that property taxes are like unconstitutional because our country was based on broad-based land ownership yeah, i don't get so much of that anymore <laughs> and now they have better questions like why is our world's uh, hell <laughs> it's a much better right. question <laughs> yeah so if you were listening last week, I mentioned how I hit for 45 bucks on a scratcher. And the fact that I felt compelled to buy a scratcher was more evidence that, yes, this is hell. So, of course, I went and cashed in my ticket and was planning on immediately buying Mega Millions and Powerball tickets because I, I still dupe myself into believing the lottery funds public education and that someday I will win millions of dollars. And I have been told by many people that if you don't win a jackpot, and 45 bucks is no jackpot. In order to win the big prize, you must, you must reinvest your winnings. Problem is, that was no $45 winner, apparently. It was only a $5 winner because I misread the ticket. Oh, no. <laughs> he... And when I gave it to the Are guy... Are you more bitter for being a little blind now? <laughs> oh, dude, I was so upset because I was like, hey, man, uh, I think that hit for $45. He goes, nope, $5. And I goes, can I see the ticket? So he just showed me the receipt, which is proof that it was a $5 winner. Right. But at the same time, I was like, no, I wanted to figure out my math. And he was like, I can't give you back your ticket. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Still, the money is and was reinvested in the lotto, which all means, heads up, listeners... If I am not here in studio next week, I'm still celebrating for hitting the lotto. If I am here next week, this whole reinvesting winnings in the lottery is a bunch of crap. Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what makes you so special anyway? (laughs) What makes you so special anyway? This is how Dan was delivering that question from hell yesterday. What makes you so special? Anyway. Anyway. I, like, I like that. What are you, Little Paul Harvey? Suspense. What yeah. the hell is going on there? <laughs> Earlier this week, I mentioned how a listener from Texas was visiting Chicago this past weekend, and they contacted us saying they'd love to meet the crew here on This Is Hell. However, I could not meet 
Alex B. from Texas because my most recent operation, a hernia surgery, is not healing as quickly as I hoped. I spent most of my weekend laying on my back with an ice pack on my stomach. It really sucks because we absolutely love meeting listeners from out of town. And as I mentioned yesterday, we got an email over the weekend from one of those out-of-town listeners who we have had the pleasure of meeting while they were visiting Chicago. The listener's name is Francesco, who dropped by Office Hours, our weekly Wednesday meet-and-greet that's really a drink-and-think. It was like five or six years ago. And Francesco is in the midst of a cross-country drive from Portland, Oregon, on his way to moving back to his home country of Italy. He was going to visit family in Pennsylvania and then fly back to Italy where he was going to start his life anew. So, Francesco wrote to us last weekend. He writes, Hello and good day to the one and only dearest Chuck. Now, I'm sharing this email because it's one of the most beautifully written emails I've we've ever received here on This Is Hell. Francesco says or asks, How are you doing? Well, I sure do hope that these few words find you, your girly, and all your loves very well. It's a strange, roadie-like feeling that washes over me while I write. You and the whole This Is Hell crew with every show remind me how I'm not crazy for having this growing distaste gurgle up from below. It's a rumbling agita that bubbles up and out of the accelerating growth of BS, innervating the normal of society. I'm not much of a writer. Are you freaking kidding me? I'm not much of a writer after that paragraph? (laughs) I'm not much of a writer or even corresponder through these harnesses of modern communication, but I just had to muster up the courage to write to you. There's a couple of reasons for it. First, I'm so damn happy that you continue to rise up and improve on your path to recovery. Yeah, let's hope that continues, Francesco, because I'm kind of up in the air on it right now. I can't imagine all the stress, fear, and struggle. Man, this hell of normal would have sucked so much more without you. God, or Gaia, or Pacamama, or whomever. Bless you and all those who supported your recovery. You continue to nourish meaningful, constructive discourse like few people in this abysmal late stage of capitalism wherein capital has already begun eating its entrails. Well, crap, without you and this is hell crew, hell might just in a blink of an eye swallow up everything like the imploding star or something like that. I'm sure that there are many reasons to move to Chicago, but it would be a dream to support the work you do. Someday, maybe. On another note, selfishly, I also write with an ask. The other day I was offered a paid research opportunity, seeing that one, it pays okay and people will need money to operate, still need money to operate in this capital colonized world. And two, it's a great opportunity to brush off the old deep critical thinking research brain to help a great filmmaker realize his next project, which happens to be on police brutality. The film will focus primarily on the history and contemporary reality of police brutality in Baltimore, St. Louis, and on the West Coast, Portland, and Seattle. So the opportunity was kind of thrown in my lap and I'm writing to a number of folks asking for contacts, tips, and or ideas that can help me do a good job for the filmmaker David Goodman. If you have any thoughts or leads or anything all related to this big piece, please send them along. Meanwhile and beyond, I'm, I'll still be looking forward to every show, dreaming that I'll make another Office Hours session, perhaps one that does not end with me in a bit of a 
strong beer-fueled drunken stupor, eating up tasty spicy madness, and then puking it up before snoozing a wee bit before heading back on the road out of the United States. Man, it turns out that, yeah, this is how it resonates with the reality the world over. As my grandmother, Nana Shashina, would regularly remind me when I rambled on about better places over yonder. She would say, Tuto il mondo e un passe, meaning that the whole world is one place. Sadly, in life, we cannot escape, escape, although I think you have committed yourself to one of the greatest antidotes, learning, and sharing. How much I've learned through just being another listener on your journey of exploration, I can repay you enough for that. Please keep up the priceless work. You all are my heroes. Seriously, I hope to hear from you, but even if I don't, I love you and the whole This Is Hell crew. Take care, Ravel, and share. Francesco. P.S. I'm stuck in Portugal for another year or two, but I'll likely be moving back to the divided states of amnesia, a.k.a. USA. I very much look forward to drinking pints again and uh, clinking pints again and chatting with you and the good folks at Carrie's. Meanwhile and beyond, big hugs. That's why we love meeting listeners. Thank you, Francesco. That's one of the most beautiful correspondences anyone has ever sent to us. I'm looking forward to clinking pints with you at Carrie's soon, too. And I will be contacting you with Clark Randall, uh, our guest from yesterday's show, who's been writing on police brutality in St. Louis for several years. And maybe you two can work out something to help out David Goodman with his new film. You, too, can email us at chuckatthisishell.com or message us via Facebook, Discord, Patreon, or what used to be Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio. And if you do, we will likely share whatever it is that you have to say here on air. Coming up, big tech and its scam to profit off the toxic waste they've created. We will also have This Week in Rotten History. Will will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell, and will tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And the end of the world that is possible, which we are discussing today, is one of a burning planet poisoned with toxic waste that generated fortunes for the same businesses that then got rich off of cleaning up the mess they themselves created in the first place. Joining us is culture, tech, waste, Wealth and Skyscrapers writer Matthew King, who posted the New Republic article, Big Tech's Waste Solutions Are a Scam. Welcome to This Is Hell, Matt. Hey, Chuck. Very honored to be on the show. Thanks so much for the invite. Thank you so much for being on the show. Find You can find out more about Matt at his website, matt-king.me. Follow Matt on twitter.com, at underscore Matt King. So you start off by writing it's almost become a cliche the many signs that waste is slowly killing us the footprints are everywhere from the leaky pipelines and cargo trains that unleash toxic plumes above ohio one month to explosive chemicals mysteriously disappearing across western plains the next countless communities groundwater has been poisoned by forever chemicals in firefighting foam and corroding gas station storage tanks microplastics have been found in everything from kale to human breast milk to sea creatures at the bottom of the mariana trench Nature reported earlier this month that this February, the European Chemicals Agency, ECHA in Helsinki, published a proposal that could lead to the world's largest ever clampdown on chemical production. 
chemicals production. The plan, put forward by environmental agencies in five countries, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, and Sweden, would heavily restrict the manufacture of more than 12,000 substances, collectively known as forever chemicals. These chemicals, PFAs as they are known, are all around us. They coat nonstick cookware, smartphone screens, weatherproof clothing, and stain-resistant textiles. They are also used in microchips, jet engines, cars, batteries, medical devices, and refrigeration systems. So, Matt, is there any history that would suggest this may actually have an impact on PFA production globally? Will these manufacturers simply move to nations with far fewer environmental regulations and limitations placed on the production of PFAs? Or could this actually mean a decrease in PFA production globally? Yeah, that's that's actually a really interesting report. I think I remember seeing headlines about it, but um, you know, this waste space in general is just every week there's new horror stories as well as new uh, kind of bright spots of optimism on the horizon. It's it's hard to keep up with everything. Um, I think when when you look at something like PFAS, um, it's still I, I, it's hard to imagine that driving some sort of larger change. Um, it's it's exciting to see a handful of countries trying to take the lead in this regard. But as you noted, um, you know, as these materials break down in the, in the environment, it, it becomes impossible to clean up and undo the damage of these chemicals as they, uh, you know, penetrate our land, as they penetrate our drinking water, as like you said, we even uh, are starting to find uh, trace evidence of this in our bodies. The, the latest scary headline I saw just this week is uh, not only have they found microplastics in human blood and human placentas, I think they actually just found uh, particles in the first human heart that they've uh, tested. So um, it's it's hard to get too excited about that. I think I think the historical examples that do give us some optimism is you look at uh, something like the ozone crisis uh, back in the 70s and 80s, where we kind of quickly saw what was happening uh, to the ozone. And there was kind of a global pact to clamp down on uh, the pollution that was causing that hazard. And we did. That was a success. Um, you know, I think we largely I, I'm blanking on the exact percentage, but I think it's, you know, something upwards of 80 to 90 percent of the ozone layer has been restored. Um, I think it's an ongoing battle. I think in the recent years, there has been some uh, that we've seen some uh, kind of decrease on that front. And there's kind of some stop gaps where people are still emitting some of these dangerous substances. But the ozone layer is an optimistic example where we came together past common sense regulation to stop producing these things in the first place. Um, and it was a success. I think uh, one other example I remember coming up in my research um, you know, I think when we look at the EPA in the U.S., there are some of those very specific extreme examples where they have succeeded in banning these hazardous materials. So they succeeded with the ozone. Another uh, substance that the EPA was effective in going after was DDT back in the you know uh, mid-century, a uh, couple decades ago. So there are some of those uh, kind of ex anomalies <laughs> in recent history that. Uh, give us some optimism that we can come together and and, and take action as needed. But um, I don't know, still, I'm still far from optimistic when we look at uh, microplastics and, and kind of just the challenge ahead there. But again, as you were pointing out, these were years ago. These were in the past decades ago, even. So right. do you think that the 
I guess this is a two-part question. Do you think that the EPA has the power it had in the past to be able to move forward on more regulations at limiting uh, pollution, waste, and the garbage crisis? Or do you think that uh, it's not just the uh, EPA's uh, weakness or power that it has? It also has to do with you know popular political will and the lobbying of uh, private interests. Do you is the environment the same? I'm talking about you know the political environment. Is the political environment the same today as it was when we were banning things like chlorofluorocarbons and uh, DDT? Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, you know I think in some ways the the lack of action from agencies like the EPA in the last few decades around plastic is a testament to the kind of the lack of political power there. Um, I think the way I kind of have been seeing things is in recent years, um, there has been growing awareness around the problems around waste. I think we're starting to realize that a lot of these negative externalities are ticking time bombs. So whether it's microplastics, uh, whether it's landfills that we've kind of are learning more and more don't really contain the waste, but they're leaking and polluting groundwater and uh, nearby communities. I think what I'm seeing is kind of a, grow a growing awareness again of the dangers of waste that reminds me of kind of that earlier era in like the 70s. Um, and what I see is a lot of what I see now is industry uh, led by big tech, but also big tech in partnership with all of, you know, the big industry stalwarts, whether that's oil and gas, uh, you know, CPG consumer companies, plastics and farm and pharmaceuticals. What I'm seeing is they're they're now seeing that growing public awareness and trying to use um, investment into what what you might call advanced recycling methods that have a lot of questions around whether or not they work as kind of attempt as an attempt to um, kind of suppress any uh, resurgent action from an agency like the EPA. So. It remains to be seen. I think it's encouraging that there's more and more public awareness. You know, I'm obviously, as a journalist, invested in trying to continue to make noise around this issue, um, and I'm not going to give up hope, but it is going to be a really interesting decade or two to come because I think industry, as you've noted in your intro, they're set on trying to uphold the status quo, and the more that they can invest and hype up this story around recycling and the fact that they can just take their negative externalities uh, you know, collect them, treat them, reproduce them into new products and commodities. The more they can spin that story, um, you know, the 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 more risk there is that uh, public awareness and public urgency uh, starts to wane away again. So it, it'll it'll be really interesting. You point out that a half century after the birth of modern environmentalism, cleaning up all of our trash remains an elusive proposition. Uh, things have gotten worse since the beginning of the environmental uh, movement, but it's very, very likely they are not as bad as things would have been if there was no environmental movement. Are we at least producing garbage at a slower rate than we were prior to the beginning of the environmental movement? Or are we creating more new, you know, for example, disposable plastics uh, leading to even more waste than before the environmental movement? Yeah, it's a great it's a great point uh, to call out there. And the sad truth is, even despite all these gains in aware in public awareness, uh, we're producing more waste than ever before. <laughs> I have a few stats I wrote down here, um, and, and and one of the lessons here too is we're still trying to really just map the full extent of this waste footprint. But a few stats I can give you: 
Uh, today, we're roughly producing two and a half billion uh, tons of solid waste each year. That's on track to double by 2050. A uh, vast majority of that goes to landfill still today. Um, when we look at the example of plastic, too, you know, you'd think that'd be one area we'd see some progress in. Plastic of all these uh, different pollutants has been kind of the focus of, you know, the global stage in recent years. The one area where we're start, starting to see some international cooperation on potential agreements. Um, and yet the latest numbers show that virgin plastic production is on track to triple by 2060. Um, and there's kind of a dark backstory there in that part of what's fueling that continued boom in plastic production is a second act from those oil and gas producers. So what we see is that as they see their uh, you know, traditional fossil fuel businesses um, threatened, as they see the rise of electric cars and electrification more broadly, they're now pivoting into uh, fossil fuel powered plastics production. So um, in the U.S., we see it kind of in the former Rust Belt. We see it down along the border and um, into Mexico. All of these new uh, plastic production factories uh, funded by ExxonMobil, funded by BP, that are uh, just continuing to keep the price of virgin plastic uh, lower than ever. So um, that is that is another kind of... Uh, um, dampens, you know, the optimism we might have is despite all this awareness, we're still really struggling to even kind of uh, curtail that the production of waste in the first place. But the environmental movement so far, the record, I mean, I, I don't want to oversimplify this, but so far the record would suggest that the environmental movement isn't winning in their battle against the oil industry when it comes to oil production. So what kind of hope can we have for the environmental movement to have any imp impact on the oil industry when it comes to petrochemicals? Yeah, like is that in regards to uh, like the plastics production that we're seeing those exactly. businesses going to? Yeah. Um, causes for optimism there. <laughs> um, I think, you know, honestly, I think the hypocrisy around it um, and the fact that there is some growing attention, I think, is is something to be, you know, something to um, that we can look to as as maybe helping to drive public awareness. Um, but I don't know. I, I honestly don't. Uh, I think it kind of remains to be seen. Um, I think there's still a, a need to educate people about what's happening, um, the extent of the problem today. And I, I you know, I, I still working toward that optimism on that front. I don't know if I have good. Uh, clear signs to point to yet. Yeah, you know, it just reminds me of the tobacco makers. And if tobacco makers had, as soon as uh, recreational marijuana became legal, they went into a marijuana production. You know, it's a, it sounds like the exact same kind of thing that the oil industry is doing. So you write, perhaps yeah. our most damning waste legacy is the carbon emissions that have unleashed extreme weather patterns and species loss. And yet at this rate, it's hard to tell if we've seen the worst of our garbage crisis. How likely is it that we can stop it from getting worse while continuing economic growth? Is it possible to keep what you call the garbage crisis from getting worse while we pursue global economic growth through things like globalization? Yeah, that is kind of the big <laughs> trillion dollar question. Um, and I, again, I don't know if there's a clear answer. I think there are some um, specific examples you can see, you know, um, there, there are kind of a dozen or so countries that have taken the lead in, in passing some sort of action around curtailing waste. Uh, we see that mostly in Europe. 
And I know I, I've, there are a couple kind of specific countries where they've, um, you know, passed some sort of uh, measure to try to curtail waste by, let's say, 20% over the next five years. And they see that economic uh, growth in that country, you know, either stays the same or continues to tick upwards, even as they're, you know, uh, kind of mildly curtailing that waste stream. So there are some early examples like that that show that economic growth is possible with um, you know, responsible waste measures. I think there's also an argument to be had, you know, that why should um, why should managing our waste problem be dependent on, you know, maintaining some sort of um, unreasonable or, you know, dangerous level of growth that might continue to do uh, more harm. So I, I think I, that, again, uh, sort of remains to be seen. And you mentioned that despite the seemingly everyday disasters on the news, we're rarely aware of the mass totality of all of our waste, of the colossal amounts of damaging stuff we've created and foisted on the planet. Is that because it's hard for us to grasp that the press, the media comes up short in reporting on waste because the problem is so big, so huge, the size of it is hard to not only convey, but for even investigative journalists to understand, or do you think there there might be another reason, maybe bottom line reasons about, uh, you know, establishment media and corporate media outlets not wanting to report uh, any negative stories about not only plastics, but the oil industry in general? Yeah, I think, um, you know, quite literally, it's a problem that's um, kept out of are, you know, the public sight lines or much of the public sight line. Um, You know, the stuff we throw away is carted away to landfills that are, you know, either, you know, uh, out in rural areas. Uh, Unfortunately, usually a lot of those uh, landfills or waste incineration centers do border on, um, you know, lower income communities, which is a whole crisis that could uh, be its own show. Um, but, you know, quite literally where, you know, waste is taken away from the public uh, or, you know, everything about, I think, our culture and our economy encourages us not to think about it, but to, you know, continue with kind of these throwaway habits and not think about it. Um, even further than that, you know, we see kind of this global uh, inequality in terms of developed countries who are by far the biggest producers of waste. I think the order of magnitude sometimes is that, you know, a uh, average citizen in a Western country can produce anywhere from 40 to 70 times as much plastic as uh, someone in a developing country. And yet we see this uh, just a kind of blatant inequality where that developed country is producing all this waste, and then we're shipping our waste to those developing countries to put it in their landfills, let it sit on their coastlines, let them find some way to deal with it. Um, so there's a quite sophisticated kind of infrastructure to get this stuff away from us and uh, encourage us not to think about it. Um, I think in the media, it isn't, I think more and more people are covering it. I mean, we're starting to, it's starting to become unavoidable, right? Like these, uh, whether it's, you know, microplastics, I think is the most, um, most popular example. But, you know, as these studies come out, as we're seeing plastic pop up everywhere, how can we not report on it? So I think finally, we're starting to see some uh, visibility in that regard. But I do think, yeah, for a while, um, the media shied away from it. I think part of it might have been, like you said, who are the advertisers funding those uh, publications? Um, This, you know, this waste problem is something that affects oil and gas, CPG, 
uh, plastics, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, you know, that's kind of the list of the biggest advertisers supporting a lot of for-profit media. So in that regard, they definitely have an incentive not to dig too deep. I think it's also just a very unpleasant subject to think about um, because we're still trying to understand the full scope of, of all these bad habits and, and, the, and the impact down the line. Um, and we don't have, you know, I think there isn't, we kind of have a sense of what solutions we need, what regulation needs to happen, uh, but we're really, it really seems uh, far away from uh, getting close to any kind of action in that regard. So it's a very unpleasant subject for audiences. So do you think the the press, though, is bringing a little bit more attention or is bringing increased attention to the garbage and waste crisis, bringing more attention to the plastics production because it affects us universally this doesn't affect like PFAS that it doesn't PFAs they don't uh, affect just a certain group of people it's not uh, you know we see environmental racism here in Chicago all the time with coal burning plants being in poor uh, neighborhoods of mostly people of color um, it, this is not an issue that can be contained to a certain area this is not an issue of affecting only the marginalized but affecting everybody including rich white people do you think that that's yeah. one of the reasons that that is bringing attention to plastics because this is not only affecting the poor and people of color but people who are well off and white yep no i think that's exactly right um and you know like i was saying earlier it's hard to keep up with the amount of news in some regards it's like you know every week i feel like i'm seeing a new headline about you know some new uh, unimaginable place where, you know, we've found yet more microplastics or traces of PFAS. So um, there definitely is more and more activity, more news around this subject. And to your point, um, yeah, I think the reason we're trying to hear, the reason we're hearing this now is because it's affecting everyone, um, including <laughs> the upper, you know, the upper echelons of society, as, as you put it. Um, and as you were mentioning earlier about developed countries making most of the plastics and then sending it off to countries that don't make the plastics, that just makes me think of a kind of waste and garbage colonialism as well. Right. Yep. It's very Yeah, there's... Yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say there's a, a scholar who I uh, really ap appreciate their work. Their name's Max Liberon. They're based in Canada. Um, one of the kind of founders of this new academic field of what's called discard studies. Um, and they've done a lot of great work to, to really draw that connection between uh, pollution and colonialism. Um, I think they even might have a, an article titled Pollution is Colonialism. And, and like you said, it's um, it helps us realize that this, right, this economic system that um, we're kind of abiding by every day depends on colonial access to land um, where we can kind of uh, supposedly bury these kind of negative externalities of the economic system and pretend that we never have to deal with them again, which obviously isn't the case. Um, yeah. Yeah. Max was on our show a few years ago and oh, great. they were absolutely fantastic. And people can find our interview with Max Liberon at our website. This is hell.com. All you have to do is a search on his last name. If you can figure out how to spell it, you write <laughs> a steady flow of evidence points to the second order impacts and long term consequences of pollution from increased cancer rates and organ damage to endocrine disruption and low fertility. But those outcomes, you know, they take years to develop. And by that time, those who were responsible, who should be held accountable for introducing these toxins into the environment, 
if they, if they are corporations, they've been likely been sold to others who did not make the decision to release these uh, plastics or chemicals into the environment, or the individuals who are responsible or made those decisions individually, they're long dead. How can we hold short-term profit seekers responsible for the consequences of their actions over the long term? Are these delayed second-order outcomes, are long-term consequences for those who take these actions essentially risk-free? Right. No, that's a huge question. Um, And something that came up in my research that I don't think fully got into the piece is... um, and this ties back, but in the U.S., you know, one one of the big programs we have uh, created to address this is called the Superfund Act, and um, it was rolled out, I believe, in like the late '70s. It's uh, in conjunction with the EPA, and it was created specifically to clean up hazardous waste sites across the U.S. Um, and this isn't that doesn't only mean landfills or industrial mines, but it could even mean. Uh, kind of commercial warehouses, kind of in exurban areas. It could include, believe it or not, like dry cleaning chains that may might very much be within uh, certain communities. Um, and the the whole point of this program was to clean up these waste sites. But like you said, uh, we aren't detecting the extent of that pollution until decades later. Uh, often, the what that means is that whoever, whatever business was there and perpetrated that pollution to begin with, they've often gone bankrupt. They might have sold their business uh, many times over. Uh, Often we can't even identify who was the original business two or three decades ago that was the first one on this site and kind of the first to pollute the surrounding area. And so what ends up happening is this U.S. Superfund becomes kind of a blank check bailout to industry writ large. Um, And if you're, and what it meant Uh, historically is that if you're a small business or a large business, uh, you're almost not even thinking twice about uh, that potential cost because you know it's not going to affect you. Um, And, and, you know, it's something for generations ahead to to deal with. So I think one of the things I mentioned in the piece that we can do is, you know, uh, really kind of bolster that the, the mission behind that program you know, we could hire a core of environmental surveyors and litigators to not be surveying these sites decades after the fact, but in the moment um, and holding these businesses accountable as as they behave in, in the present. Um, I, that's kind of an area I'm excited to dig into more. I'm not sure how realistic that is or, or what measures have been taken to kind of increase funding to those agencies and those teams. But um, that that's one, you know, that would be one uh route to kind of hold these people accountable. Do you think that was the unintended consequence of super funds, or do you think that that was what the thinking was in the 1980s when the Superfund Act passed, that this is something, yes, that will clean up the environment, but this will also subsidize the cleanup of the environment from the uh, private sector? Do you think that that was the intent originally or not? Um. You know, I'd have to spend even a little more time in that history. I think um, I I definitely think it wasn't beyond the realm of what they imagined. They knew that was a possibility. Um, I think as with a lot of regulatory action, um, you know, you have to kind of accept compromises or incremental steps towards, you know, the ultimate goal, even if it's not going to take you all the way there. So if this was a way for that, if this was a way for government to 
um, you know, collect some sort of funds and begin to clean up some of these, you know, hazardous waste sites, even if it's not the best way to do it, even if we're not going to be able to tackle all these sites as quickly as we would. Um, it was some sort of step towards that vision. And so I could see kind of those um, activists, the legislators at the time being excited that at least, you know, because we never had any sort of program like that before in the past. And so I could see them thinking something is better than nothing, even though it's imperfect, um, even though it might have uh, some of this moral hazard effect. Um, but it is, it's a deep history that I need to dig into more because I am, it, it's an interesting point that you bring up. Um, and I'm kind of curious, how much did they foresee this? Uh, did they, did they kind of underplay how much it would be a problem? Um, those are, those are good questions. And if I remember right, I think Gary Hart was a big person behind the Superfund uh, legislation. Mm. Uh, we are speaking with Culture, Tech, Waste, Wealth, and Skyscrapers writer Matthew King, who posted the New Republic article, Big Tech's Waste Solutions Are a Scam. You can find out more about Matt at his website, matt-king.me, and you can follow Matt on Twitter, at underscore Matt King. You also mentioned how rather than face the hard truths about reorganizing our system to stop waste. Policymakers and citizens are falling victim to another pernicious threat, empty and inefficient, inefficient promises from the tech industry. So why not face the hard truths about our system and the waste it creates, its impact on all of us, and work toward less waste and more resources put toward addressing the waste we've already created and we will continue to produce? In your opinion, what keeps policymakers from facing that hard truth. We've had guests say that it's because of the revolving door between the private and public sector. We've had guests say it's because of the power of money. We've had guests say it's because of the influence of lobbyists. We've had guests say it's because of the, you know, a positive or the uh, effective impact of uh, propaganda from the far right, <clears throat> anti-environmental propaganda. So what do you think keeps policymakers from facing that hard truth? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it could be a longer conversation where you kind of really drill in and look at all the different types of pollution and why kind of what are the factors um, impeding action on any given pollutant. Um, generally speaking, like you said, I do think lobbying plays a role that, you know, if you're a politician and you have only a certain amount of political capital to spend, you know, each each term or each year, um, you know, it might it waste waste uh, action might not be high on your list, especially if you know some of your biggest backers are some of the biggest polluters out there. Um, I think one reality is that a lot of uh, regulatory action we would need could make life harder for consumers. So, you know, part of the reason why the throwaway economy has been so wildly successful is it's it it is it does make uh, life easier in a lot of ways for consumers to just use things once, throw it away, um, to not have to kind of deal with um, the pain of, you know, having a bunch of refillable containers that you're, you know, lugging back to the store each time you go. Um, so I think there is, uh, there's been kind of this cult of consumerism and wanting to make things as easy as possible for consumers. Um, that's almost kind of this unwritten, you know, <laughs> rule and very hard to kind of go against um go kind of go against that and that extends beyond waste as well you know whether we're looking at you know monopoly activity um a lot of areas where we're kind of upholding consumer ease 
um, over everything else. Um, a couple other things I'd mention is one thing is just, again, failure um, by government. It's just there's really like no cost to throwing things away right now. So whether you're a consumer or a business, it just continues to be very, very cheap to not account for these externalities. Uh, governments are, you know, continue to seem happy to, um, you know, manage this waste as best they can, get it away from people so we're not thinking about it. Um, there's no tax to the business for, you know, everything that's going to landfill. So it's just, it's like um, unreasonably cheap. <laughs> you know, some of these behaviors we've uh, kind of built up over the decades. Um, and then the last thing I would call out again is is what we've talked a little bit about is I do think there are some of these false promises around recycling that lull us a little bit and, and um, make us think that kind of, we, you know, the status quo isn't too bad. We can continue behaving the way we are as long as we kind of figure out this afterlife of these products. But what that overlooks is kind of just the difficulty of re recycling everything today. The fact that a lot of the stuff that claims to be recyclable isn't really recyclable. Um, that's a whole other area we could go into, but I do think we continue to be lulled by kind of these, um, easy fix stories, uh, that, you know, make us feel less bad about how we're behaving already and make us think that, you know, we don't have to kind of accept those inconveniences or pains in our daily life. Um, and we can kind of keep on living like we are. Recycling is kind of, you know, it's consumer activism. It's making the consumer be responsible for the pro the processes of that have created the, the garbage crisis and the waste crisis that we are facing today. And a lot of the recycling uh, machinery, we don't even know how much it works. We know that here in Chicago, I think the recycling percentage is at about 8%. It might have gone up from waste management. But again, that's, you know, we don't know. All that stuff is being kept secret from us. It's proprietary information, so we don't even know how much stuff is being actually recycled. I only recently found out that there are recycling machines, uh, and I believe they're still here in Chicago and Illinois, that if you crush the can before you throw it in your recycling, the recycling machine won't take it. The, re the can has to be kept in its entirety for it to actually be recycled. So recycling doesn't seem to be doing anything except giving us the impression, giving us this feeling that we are doing something to address the environmental problem when in reality we're really not doing much we're doing something but we're not doing much you mentioned how advanced recycling startups meanwhile are forging new markets for lithium ion batteries and food waste one product claims to convert general household waste into sustainable plastic feedstock even more companies are locking or sorry looking to biology identifying bacteria or plants and fungi that can absorb petrochemicals and harmful metals founders pledge not only a solution to a waste problem, but also hefty returns for investors. But if lithium-ion batteries and food waste can be converted into something useful, will we continue to mine lithium, a destructive extractive process that is bad for the environment and often for workers at the levels we currently are, if not more? Will we continue to waste food? Are we allowing for the continued production of waste at high levels? Are we even incentivizing waste if it can become a useful product? That's a big one. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think all of the above. Um, yeah, I think the there are part of it is this space is still really new. So I, it's in the last few years that we've kind of seen this influx of funding into what some people some people are calling waste tech. Uh, so any variety of waste management startups that claim, you know, some of them claim to, you know, better 
have better operational abilities. Some are claiming uh, kind of almost miraculous recycling abilities, like the one company you mentioned. Again, they're still kind of pro proving out these concepts, but they claim that uh, you'll be able to take all of your general household waste and through some sort of, um, you know, advanced chemical process, they can kind of uh, turn general waste into feedstock for, um, you know, the equivalent of plastic pellets to create, you know, uh, single use goods. So there are, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think the vast majority of them, we still don't even know if this technology works. Some of these startups have been around upwards of a decade now, and they're still trying to uh, validate these proof of concepts. Um, the two, I think the two downsides here is one, um, even if it works, there's kind of this question of can it keep up with the scale of the problem? Um, and, and at what cost does it take to clean up all of this uh, waste, you know, versus versus stronger regulation to curtail the production of it in the first place? Um, I think another interesting general trend with recycling is, um, you know, in the U.S., we've really embraced the privatization of waste management. And so in, a, in the vast majority of U.S. states, we've seen recycling really uh, neutered by this privatization and uh, private waste companies love, you know, they they're, they care more about quarterly profits than they do the effectiveness of recycling. And so what we've seen in the U.S. is this huge push towards single stream recycling. Um, and I think aside from a handful of states, you know, by and large, most uh, municipalities in the country use single stream recycling, which is just uh, kind of a disaster because uh, you can you can imagine the uh, burden on those recycling centers who have to manage you know, thousands of different kinds of containers, material types, et cetera. Um, whereas if you were to look at more aggressive recycling regulation where we would implement, you know, even some minor sorting by the consumer at the point of disposal can, you know, greatly increase the efficiency of those recycling streams. So I think when we look at kind of these new waste tech recycling startups, they're kind of continuing this myth um, of recycling. I worry that um, you know, they continue to kind of, you know, give private actors, you know, the chance to lead this conversation around how to handle waste. Um, and again, all of this kind of upholds status quo modes of consumption, production, uh, industrial, you know, disposal. And, you know, again, it skirts any kind of broader reckoning about um, our behavior in the first place. So can we stop the garbage and waste crisis by increasing fines, is there any evidence that higher fines deter this kind of pollution? Um, I'm thinking. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we've really seen evidence of that yet. And part of it is because I think there's the, the tests haven't been run. Um, I know there are certain countries that have kind of explored a landfill tax to try to uh, tax certain industrial actors on kind of the volume of the waste they're sending to landfills, but those are, you know, exceptions and kind of still being worked out in terms of what they look like. So I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm checking my notes just for any other bright spots, but I think that remains to be seen. 
Well, I appreciate you checking your notes. That's very, <laughs> very nice of you. So you also point out that one self-styled solution for plastic waste was uh, outside that one outsized influence in 2012. Dutch teenager Boyan Slat. He presented a TED talk on his concept. Should have been a red flag right there. He uh, presented a TED talk on his concept for cleaning up the ocean with simple mechanisms to sweep all the trash. I've even actually heard about this before. I read about it in your article. While scientists and plastics experts cautioned that his ideas were ineffective, Slats' nonprofit, the Ocean Cleanup, founded the year after his talk went viral, has gained millions of followers and big name backers, including Salesforce, Maersk. Kia, and PayPal's Peter Thiel. But the adventure had one major problem. Its first two designs didn't work, despite the group burning through tens of millions of dollars over the course of a decade. So how much of that investment in ocean cleanup from the likes of Salesforce, Maersk, Kia, and PayPal's Peter Thiel How much of that was just about greenwashing, giving the appearance that those entities are interested in addressing the ocean's garbage crisis or the environment more generally, despite still profiting from and engaging in practice that continue to contribute to climate change? Is the reason that an investment in things like ocean cleanup is so attractive is public relations? Yeah, it's a great uh, story to call out there. Um, And it's actually one of the first kind of examples that kind of really got me interested in the subject of waste. Um, I don't think it, at least within the specific case of the ocean cleanup, it's funny that in some ways, I don't think it began as greenwashing, but it began as just this kind of ridiculous, viral, feel-good story. Um, One of the funny things I uh, remember when I was just uh, going through some of my research notes, so like you said, it was this Dutch teenager who gave a te- not even a TED talk, but a TEDx talk. So one of those kind of like local offshoots um, at a university in uh, the Netherlands. And he gave this talk and it had a very compelling title that said how the oceans can clean themselves. And he had, you know, in typical uh, tech speak, he had this very kind of counterintuitive story to tell. Uh, rather than chasing after the plastic, he wanted to create these artificial coastlines that would let the plastic come to us. Um, you know, he, like you said, he kind of put together this whole TEDx slideshow uh, presentation. Uh, the video went on YouTube and actually for three months, it sat kind of quiet and nothing was happening to it. Um, you know, so this whole ocean cleanup Uh, project almost didn't happen. But three months later, uh, that YouTube video, you know, through the whims of social media went viral. It raised uh, a couple million to start. Uh, It was really funny because uh, they raised that first couple million even before they launched the first prototype. This teenager was named by Forbes and UN as kind of, you know, this hero of the environment. Um, and then we saw, you know, the fir- both that first iteration as well as the second version, uh, both failed. They were both kind of destroyed by the ocean currents um, as they were trying to collect this plastic. And so I think it was, int- I think to start, it was kind of just this feel good story um, that people got behind and, you know, threw some money at. But then it did be, it did evolve into kind of this larger greenwashing effort. And as you mentioned, their second uh, design of this capture boom included lots of big tech investors. Um, what we've seen in the years since is the ocean, the open ocean capture continues to be kind of a working like a working concept. They haven't proven that yet. The team has pivoted to upstream river uh, kind of mechanisms to stop plastic from ever reaching the oceans. 
which is funny because that was kind of a low tech tactic that cities have been trying for decades and we didn't need kind of a you know a tech guru to to tell us about that um, but now today we continue to see the ocean cleanup have these branded partnerships. So Coca-Cola is one of the global implementation partners of the of the ocean cleanup. Um, I put, you know, I think there are Dutch multinational corporations who are also partners in that regard. So today we kind of do see it as this full-fledged greenwashing operation. These brands love to put their name on it. It remains to be seen really what impact this ocean cleanup is having. Uh, the upstream river mitigation work they're doing actually has been effective, um, you know, and they have results they can point to there at least in a way that they can't yet uh, with kind of the open ocean uh, capture booms. So um, I think it was just funny, you know, it started as kind of this viral quirk, but it has become kind of this um, emblem, you know, emblematic example of greenwashing and, and the hypocrisy there. You also write that the scale of our planet's waste can seem insurmountable. But infrastructure exists to start tackling the problem. We had Christian Parenti on the show, I think it was back in 2018, and he was saying that the, the technology, the infrastructure does exist to start tackling the problems that we have with climate change, but just, you know, ec economies of scale and the lack of a profit motive, or, or I should say the lack of enough profits to attract corporations, that they just weren't being pursued. So the technology does exist. In your opinion, what's missing? Is it the political motivation? Is it the profit motive? Is it something about the public not putting enough pressure on the government to do something about it? What do you think is missing? Yeah, I think um, part of it is an infrastructure problem. I think, um, you know, in the way that we have infrastructure set up for one-way throwaway trash streams, uh, you know, we're nowhere near as robust when it comes to recycling streams on top of that throwaway stream. But even on top of those two, uh, there's an increased need for compostable infrastructure. So that's, you know, organic waste, food scraps. Um, but also, you know, whenever we think about these new items that are coming up with compostable plastic or bioplastic, for those to really fulfill that mission, they need a compostable waste stream as well. So, we really need to build out all these infrastructures, both recycling and compost. Um, I do think consumers need to kind of be open to changing their behaviors and accepting some pain. Uh, in some countries, we see kind of these, what you call them like refillery chains popping up where, you know, instead of going to a grocery store and getting a bunch of single use packaging, uh, you're kind of committing to a relationship to a local refillery where you're bringing back your containers each week to refill. So consumer behavior is part of it. I think, again, too, is just even modest regulation from the government, um, you know, to, you know, uh, put limits around the amount of packaging people are using to standardize the types of uh, bottles that uh, are being produced to make it to to lighten the burden on our waste streams. Um, you know, I think those are those are just kind of a few of the different categories of, of where we need to see action. And, and there's a lot more in addition to that as well. So. We have been speaking with Culture Tech Waste Wealth and Skyscrapers, yes, Skyscrapers writer Matthew King, who posted the New Republic article, Big Tech's Waste Solutions Are a Scam. You can find out more about Matt at his website, matt-king.me, and you can follow Matt on Twitter at underscore 
Matt King. Uh, our final question for each and every one of our guests, Matt, is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. <laughs> I was going to ask you about why we so, even when things like ocean cleanup look to be a scam or a farce, we still look to technology to save us. But instead, my question from hell for you is something a little bit worse. And that is <laughs> what this means if we really want to tackle our pollution, our garbage, and our waste crisis is that we have to choose something other than convenience. Do you think the public will choose the planet before they choose convenience? Um. I I remain optimistic that that can happen. Um, and I think a lot of us wouldn't be doing this research or trying to do this advocacy work if we didn't think it was possible. Um, you know, I do think there are the glimmers of hope. You know, we do see some reuse behaviors happening. There are some of those reuse stores in uh, scattered about the US. Um, we're starting to see more activity around kind of second, second uh, use marketplaces when we look at things like Poshmark for clothing or um, on Facebook, one of the most popular communities on Facebook is called Buy Nothing, and they have a bunch of offshoots in different cities. Um, that's kind of its own thing. Is that based on, you know, concerns around waste or is that a reflection of kind of economic insecurity, the fact that we're seeing more and more activity in these second use markets? But um, I, I have to remain optimistic that um, consumers can embrace that inconvenience. And I think it's incumbent on government to, to do their part, uh, to meet consumers in that challenge. You know, if we're going to, if we're going to give something up and, and take on some inconvenience, um, you know, industry should be, should be doing just as much, if not more as well. And, and, and consumers can't themselves force industry, um, into those better behaviors. We need, we need government to help with that as well. Matt, thank you so much for being on this show. Keep in touch with us. If you have any new writing coming out or if you are going to have a book published or anything, please get in contact with us. We'll stay on top of your writing as well. We'd love to have you back on the show. Thanks so much, Chuck. This is a blast. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell and this week's abyss is the vast wastelands of junk generated by big tech firms who made a killing selling their stuff that's polluting the world and are killing us again from profits made from cleaning up their own mess if you learned something from our conversation with matt and realized yet again yes this really is hell show your appreciation for completely listener supported this is hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus patreon podcast which goes live on thursdays at 10 a.m chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported This Is Hell by visiting this is hell.com and just clicking on support. By becoming a Patreon member, you not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online, you also get a secret code word that gives you a discount on all of our This Is Hell stuff. You can also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced on patreon in our newest feature every week whoever is producing chooses a question from hell for me submitted by our patreon subscribers a question that i have not seen nor heard until our producer asks it on the patreon podcast 
That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon and only at patreon.com slash thisishell. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. We did Patreon yesterday, so whatever you want to do from here. All right. This week's question from hell is, what makes you so special anyway? And over on Twitter, we have one response from Mo in parentheses, hypersane. <laughs> right? Sort of like stable genius, but yeah. hypersane. <laughs> hypersane. I like that. It uh, sounds like a great vanity plane plate sure, on your car. It sure does. Or a boat name. <laughs> a boat name. Like Out in the crib, seeing a gigantic yacht with that name yeah. on it. Yeah. That'd be really creepy. <laughs> um... Uh, Mo Hypersane responds, my dearest friends. Aw. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. That is sweet. Um, over on <laughs> Discord, always reliable Kim G replies, dog treats. <laughs> that does dad. make you special. That's my dad's method, too. Oh, really? He always has kibble in his pocket. Yeah, that's a good move. Yeah. Um, Cam responds, well, after my morning special KL ride, my specialized bike and clean and oh sorry, and listen to special by Lizzo on the way to watch a Saturday morning special on in the Hong Kong special administrative region. But does any of that make me special? Not especially. <laughs> no. All right. That's a pretty good answer. Yeah, it was. was Detailed. <laughs> Detailed. Thorough. Somebody spent a lot of time researching special. <laughs> and then last on Discord is Eurodov, who replies, My eyebrows look a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> I like these specific answers. Do you want to move on to Facebook or anything? Yeah, might as well see All what's right. going on on Facebook. All right, typing, typing. We've been getting a lot of really great responses this week's question from Helen. I want to thank uh, Carrie's Lounge proprietor, uh, Pete Valavanis, for coming up with this week's question from Helen. Great question, Pete. All right, we have six responses on Facebook so so far. Doug M. uh, The last person who asked that got hashtag me (laughs) too. Wow. (laughs) What makes you so special anyway? Wow. Wow. Wow, who said that? Uh, Doug M. Uh, Doug, you are the leader. Yeah. Going into yeah. the last few furlongs of this race. <laughs> uh, Ray O. responds, I'm not Chuck. <laughs> oh, that was mean. <laughs> Does that mean we're all Chuck? By the way, being disabled, I am special. <laughs> sure, by, by definition. Yeah, by definition. Um, Warren L. responds, I eat my shredded wheat without milk. <laughs> wow. That sounds dry. That doesn't sound good. Yeah. Uh, At least it's uh, not Captain Crunch. Dill. <laughs> David disgusting. Z. replies, don't know. I mean, I'm in the center of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> These are really good Great. answers to the question from Al. Thanks, Pete. Um, t- John T., that my upstairs neighbor t- stormed in and then fell into a dead silence. What should I do? <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. Stay away from your handgun. Yeah. Uh, stay away from sharp objects. Yeah. Show them the exit. <laughs> <laughs> lots, of, lots of good options. Yeah. Any more? Uh, Jeff C., last one, is I'm the first person to respond on Facebook. 
<laughs> That's what makes him special. That's what makes uh, Jeff special. Uh, we will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell tomorrow after Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever this is hell swag you want. Will, what's Jeff talking about during next week's or during this week's moment of truth? Jeff weaves a tale, not from the Celts, but Celtish. <laughs> Having a little throat issue there. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On August 27th, 1960, 63 years ago this week, in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay, that's already scary. In Jacksonville, Florida, more than 200 white people, yikes, armed with baseball bats and axe handles, descended upon the whites-only lunch counter of a downtown Woolworth store in an event called Axe Handle Saturday. Guessing... We should start one of those. <laughs> Axe Handle Saturday. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, I assume that they are descending upon a whites-only lunch counter because it's not only whites who are sitting there. I'm assuming Just... there's a sit-in going on. <laughs> Something's going on. Yeah. So keep in mind, this is the same Jacksonville, Florida, where over the weekend, a white man entered a Dollar General with an AR-15 wearing a uniform that was emblazoned with a Rhodesian military insignia that represents white supremacy and then killed three innocent African Americans. 63 years later in Jacksonville is still a site of white supremacy and violent, deadly racism. So back in 1960, Axe Handle Saturday was reportedly organized by the local KKK. Not surprisingly, they were there to disrupt the latest in a series of peaceful sit-ins by black teenagers from a youth council of the NAACP. As the whites arrived at the lunch counter, they first tried to intimidate the black teenagers by yelling and spitting at them because, you know, white supremacy. When that didn't produce the result they wanted, they began swinging their bats and clubs, pounding on the peaceful demonstrators and chasing them into the street. Police showed up. Mostly stood around and watched, as they do, as the rioters also beat on black bystanders who just happened to be nearby. Because, again, white supremacy and its historic enforcement by the police. Some cops even joined in the beatings, while others arrested black demonstrators. The scene settled down only after most of the victims took cover in a nearby church, at which point the white rioters, for some reason, lost interest and wandered away. It's almost as if the violent, deadly, bloodthirsty, hate-filled white supremacists saw the church and suddenly had a horrible case of cognitive dissonance. Wait, wait, wait. What would Jesus do? Would he beat peaceful black people with baseball bats and axe handles? And they suddenly went home. Also in Rotten History, on August 28, 1988, 35 years ago this week, using an international air show, I'm sorry, during an international air show at the U.S. Ramstein airbase in what was then West Germany, an audience of 300,000 people watched a spectacular performance by the Frecce Cicololi. Frecce Cicololi. The uh, Italian Air Force equivalent of the Blue Angels acrobatic team. And yes, the U.S. had an Air Force base in West Germany named after the Neue Deutsche Hart or New German Hardness Band, Rammstein. The Italian Frecce Tricolori, group of 10 jets, trailing smoke in the green, white, and red colors of the Italian flag, was performing one of their renowned stunts, known as the Pierced Heart, 
It involved 10 planes flying steeply toward or upward in tight formation and then splitting into two groups of five and four each before looping back down toward the group so as to form a giant heart shape in the air. Meanwhile, the 10th plane would separate from the group and loop around the back, just as the two groups of planes met and crossed each other while forming the point at the bottom of the heart, the lone 10th plane would swoop around in the direction of the crowd and shoot through the best uh, through, through the heart shape, piercing it like an arrow. It was a stunt that demanded outstanding precision, which is why only the very best of the best Italian military pilots were chosen for the elite acrobatic aerobatic team. But on this occasion, a pilot in one of the two groups miscalculated by a split second and the plane doing the piercing of the heart maneuver slammed into him, causing an explosion that damaged several aircraft in the formation. One of the other planes careened out of control and hit a medevac helicopter on the ground nearby, whose pilot, the helicopter pilot, would die in the hospital a few weeks later. The pilot of that plane that hit the helicopter ejected, but he hit the ground and was killed because his parachute never opened. As for the plane doing the piercing arrow maneuver, it shot directly into the crowd, crashing in a ball of fire as terrified spectators ran for their lives. The flaming mass of red-hot metal skidded along the ground until it smashed into an ice cream truck. While some other planes were also damaged, their pilots survived, but three pilots died along with 31 spectators who were killed instantly, another 16 who died later of severe burns, and more than 500 people with serious injuries that he, the emergency response would later be criticized for disorganization and poor communication between U.S. and German personnel. But I'd say, why the hell are you going to an air show? Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Will, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Our next guest, when we wrap up the week, will be an interview with another uh, about another Boston Review article. We'll be speaking with Hugh Ryan, who wrote the piece, Who's Afraid of Social Contagion? Our ideas about sexuality and gender have changed before, and now they're changing again. Hugh is a writer, historian, and curator based in Brooklyn. His latest book is The Women's House of Detention. Which sounds absolutely fascinating. It's interviews with women in prison, and it sounds fantastic, but we're going to be blowing your mind with Hughes writing at Boston Review on uh, social contagion, as the conservatives call it, when it comes to being transgender. Also, again, Will, what's Jeff doing during the moment of truth? Jeff weaves a tale, not from the Celts, but Celtish. I am your bitter, bitter blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. See, we told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.